All right. Well, I don't know. Is this thing on? I think it is. Yeah. It is. Everyone hear me all right? This thing is feels like I'm wearing a horseshoe, so hopefully it's... <laughs> I, I, I am... Well, we'll say blessed, just to be charitable to my father. I have my father's ears, so I've inherited them. Um, so anything to accentuate them just does not make it better. So hopefully they're not making my already large satellite dishes stick out any further than they already do. All right, I am very thankful, uh, as I was last year, and uh, certainly am again this year, for the invitation uh, to be here to speak to you, find brethren uh, here in Newport, and to talk to you about our Savior, to talk to you about our God whom we have given our lives and our full devotion, and certainly our voices as we just sang to him. Every sermon in this series is based on a song, yes? Uh, we at North Heights just finished a year's worth of sermons based around our hymnal. And we learned very quickly, which you probably have already learned, and not you'll learn by the end of the summer. There are more songs than there are sermons to preach. There's not enough time that we could be here till the rest of our natural lives. And we'll, because we'll keep coming up with new ways to praise Him in song, we're going to keep coming up with new songs to sing and to study. So hopefully, uh, Lord willing, the songs that your various speakers over this summer bring to you uh, will be beneficial to you. Hopefully this evening's will be as well. I love this song that we're going to study. It was the one that was just given to us, uh, that we just sang together a moment ago, Oh, to be like thee. I love how it expresses with one simple phrase. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more to the song. It keeps going. But that just that opening line, that title, Oh, to be like thee, it expresses the yearning of the singer with adoration and devotion and um, awe for the Father uh, whom we see beyond the cloud, whom we see with our eye of faith, uh, sitting on his heavenly throne, high and lifted up, so much grander than we could ever be, so much greater than we could ever hope to experience. And yet we look at him and we say, I want to be like him. It is in a very small way, the way a little child looks up at his father, his actual earthly father. And even though all of us who are dads, we don't compare to the father in heaven, but to a child, your dad, if you're a child, your dad seemingly can lift anything, knows everything, and is always around every corner. If that's not our father in heaven, I don't know how else to describe him. To a child, you dads, you're the first impression they're going to get of a higher power, of a being who is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. You're not any of those things. But to this simple mind of a child, that's the closest thing they can imagine. And then as they grow up and they open their Bibles, and they really start to appreciate who it is who made all things and who is everywhere and who knows their hearts and who knows their minds and their thoughts and who loves them so much that he's willing to sacrifice the ultimate sacrifice for them. They will, by learning from you as a godly father, they will come to better appreciate their father who is in heaven. Hallowed be his and only his name. A child looks up at his dad. Not a teenager. They don't, they don't usually do that. A child will look up at his dad with adoration and say, oh, to be like him. I want to be like my dad when I grow up. Well, I am grown up. I look to my father in heaven. And I notice, in contrast, how many mistakes I make in life and how much I am very much quite often not like him. And yet the song still pours out of my mouth. I look to him and I say, oh, to be like thee. Oh, I wish I could be more like thee. 
I wish I could be closer to you every day. I wish I could pay more attention to how you react because I often react wrongly. I wish I could pay more attention to how you handle a problem because I tend to mess things up even worse. Oh, to be like thee. Having said all that, I'm going to come back to that idea that's at the crux of this song. But I feel like it's important to start, and I say that as if it's going to be a little five-minute thing. This is, this is going to be the bulk of our time here, because um, I think it's appropriate to lay this very large foundation. We sing a song called, Oh, To Be Like Thee, but it needs to be said, stop acting like God. I think we need to be reminded of that every now and then. The, the song itself teaches a good lesson. There are many qualities of the Father which we need to emulate, but... There are many qualities of the Father that we don't need to touch, that they don't belong to us. They, they are reserved for Him and Him only. And yet many of those qualities, those off-limit qualities, those divine-only qualities, those are the ones we tend to want to dabble in. Those are the ones we tend to want to stick our fingers in and get all over ourselves and make ourselves as if we were God. We are not God. We need to stop acting like we are God. So stop acting like you're God. Because you're not God. Let me give you a few examples of how you, and thus also me, are not God. First of all, God is possessive. Open your Bibles, if you will, please, to Exodus 20. We're going to jump all over our Bibles, but that's okay. It's a big book. It's got a lot of good stuff in it. Open up to Exodus 20. Read with me the first five verses. Uh, we'll come back to Exodus 20 later in the sermon, but here is the beginning of the text as Moses recites what we know of as the Ten Commandments. Moses is quoting... Uh, God is speaking through Moses, but, uh, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto you any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a, my Bible says, jealous God. Is that what your Bible says? Maybe your Bible even says possessive. That's the meaning of the word. I, Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the, of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that my Bible says hate me. But the idea in the context is look down on me. Treat me as a lesser thing. Despise me. Why? Because he's saying don't turn to these other gods. Don't make them. Don't bow down to them. Don't sacrifice unto them. Do not regard them as though they were on my level. God has no other on his level. He is sole occupant. Room number one. Chair number one. Seat number one. He is God. And he is only God. He doesn't come to a tie with anyone. Certainly, he's not a second banana to any other God either. So he tells his people, have no other gods before me. Why? If I may be so audacious as to ask the creator of the universe, why? Why should I not have any other gods before you, God? His answer is, before he says, because I made you, before he says, because I rescued you from Egypt, the first thing he says, the crux of the whole argument, why not to have any other gods, he says, I am a possessive God. I am a jealous God. Let's pause for just a second, make sure we all are on the same page. There's a difference between jealousy and envy. We use the words interchangeably, but we ought not because they're two different words. If you have something I want, I don't have it, you have it, I want to have it. If I have to take it from you, I, I fine. Or if I just want to quietly stew over the fact that I don't have it, that's envy. That's not jealousy. You've got the nice car, I'd like to have the nice car. If I have to take it from you to get it, so be it. I'm thinking about it, stewing over it, discontented in my soul as a result of it. That's envy. That's a sin, of course. 
Jealousy is a different, different ballgame. Jealousy is I have it, I don't want you to have it. Jealousy is I have it, I don't want to share it. You like what I have? Too bad, it's mine. It's all mine. You can't have it. This just belongs to me. It's mine, me, mine only. Also a sin for me to be that way. I can't be that way. But my Father in Heaven, by His very nature, is that way. He's not envious because God has everything He needs. He's not lacking anything. So there's no possibility for Him to become envious. But He does have things. God says, don't worship any other idols. Why? Because what would you make your idol out of? That tree? I made that tree. Would you carve it out of gold? I made that gold. Would you make it in the image of some um, Adonis? I made that Adonis. You want to have a sun god? I made the sun. You want to have a turtle god? I made the turtle. Whatever it is you might envision, God was there first. God said, let it be spoken into existence. He owns all those things. More than that, he owns you. He doesn't want to share the affection you might give to someone else. It all belongs to him. He's not just deserving of it. He, it is his. It belongs to him. He bought it. He bought Israel out of Egypt, the purchase price of the Passover lamb. He bought you, the purchase price of Jesus' blood. He has every right to be possessive of you. So God is jealous, but I am not allowed to be possessive. Look at Proverbs 6, verse 34. This Proverbs 6.34 For jealousy, possessiveness, is the rage of a man. Therefore he will not spare. God will not spare his punishment in the day of vengeance. If you choose to be possessive, if you choose to say, I need mine, only mine, you can't have. That's ungodly. And yet God is possessive. And yet it is told for me not to be that way. Because again, God is sole occupant. God is one and only. God owns all things. I don't own anything. An idea we'll come back to a little bit later in this sermon. So, stop acting like you're God. God is possessive. You are not. Here's something else God is. God is judgmental. Now that's a word that we often use in an exclusively negative connotation. Don't be judgmental. That person's very judgmental. Oh, I don't want to be accused of being judgmental. Okay, well, I hope not, because you're not supposed to be. We'll get there in a second. But open up, open up to Romans chapter 2, verse 16. And listen to what Paul says to the brethren there about your father in heaven. Romans 2, 16. In the day, right in the middle of the context, but that's all right. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. What will God do among many other things which God does? God has it within his purview. God has the right to peer into your heart, to read your very thoughts, and to judge you according even to your secrets. There are no private things with God. He sees right through you all the way with the Holy Spirit and with the word of God, which he inspired, which can pierce to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit like joints and marrow. He can cut right through your flesh into your inner man and he can read you like an open book. You might think you're closed off. You might hide things from everyone else, fool everybody else, but you can't fool God. He knows your thoughts and he will judge you. According to them. By his nature, he will do that. It's who he is. Therefore, to put that in a who he is phraseology, he is judgmental. Well, that's fine. He made me. He put me here. He gave me the instruction of how to live. So he has every right to see if I'm measuring up to how he wants me to live. He's the one who wrote the book that's the standard for which I live by, right? So he can be judgmental. But I need to stop acting like I'm God. Because I sometimes love being judgmental. I love looking at what someone else is doing and say, they shouldn't do it that way. Now let's, let's be clear. 
Here's the way you should do things. Right here. It's in your book. I know mine's covered in duct tape. Yours probably isn't. Mine's a very old one. You read this book. This book tells you how to live, what to do, what not to do. He gives you everything that you need. But here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the Bible does not include every single little thing you might ever do in your life. It gives you principles to live by. It gives you specific commands to obey. It gives you direct prohibitions of things to avoid. But there is a lot that is left up to you. What color is the carpet? Everything in this building is red and red tinted and red shaded. Fine. I don't care. But I don't have the right to say your congregation should not have a red theme. You should have blue pews. Because there's no book chapter verse for blue pews or even pews it's just left up to you to have pews it doesn't matter there are things that just don't matter to God he doesn't care if you want to have a pew or a long bench this pattern or not padded and 70 years ago we wouldn't have had padding that would have been too liberal now we have padding it's okay it doesn't matter I don't have the right to make up my own statutes and my own laws and then hold you accountable based on what I think you should be doing. That's the idea behind Matthew 7. Because we always know the beginning of the text, judge not that you be not judged, but the Lord doesn't stop there. He says, because with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged by it. In other words, if you try to hold someone up to your standard, not his, he tells you what to do and not do. But if you try to hold someone up to your standard of right and wrong, then you better ensure that you're living up to that standard perfectly. Guess what? You're not gonna, because you're not perfect. You're gonna trip up, and then you're gonna become a hypocrite, because you're holding them to a standard that you yourself can't even live by. God, however, can be judgmental. He has a standard. He's perfect, and he can hold me accountable when I'm not. The blessed, amazing thing about it is he offers grace when I'm not perfect, but that's a different subject. The point is judgment, and God has the right to be the judge. I. Do not. I should not be judgmental. Luke 6.37. I know I've already changed the slide, but go back over there. Forget what you see on the screen. We'll come back to that. Look at Luke 6.37 and see why I shouldn't be judgmental. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. That's also the Sermon on the Mount, but this is Luke's version of it. But keep going. Luke 6.37. Don't judge that you be not judged. Condemn not, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Three commands there. Two negative, one positive. Positive ones at the end, forgive. God gives you permission to forgive people. He does not give you permission to judge and condemn people. You don't get to hold the gavel. You don't get to bang the gavel. You don't get to say off with his head. That's not for you to decide. That's for God to decide. He will make the call, not you. So God can be judgmental. I can't be. So I need to stop acting like I'm God. God, here's another one. God is retributive. Put another way, God is a God of retribution. Open up to your last book of your Bible. Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what John writes, what he sees in his vision. Revelation 6, starting in verse 9. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar of this, under the altar, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. John sees a vision of Christians who died for their faith. They didn't just happen to die. They didn't just grow old and die. They didn't get sick and die. They were murdered because they were Christians. And now John sees them resting under the altar. But they don't seem very restful. They seem very restless because, keep reading verse 10, they cry with a loud voice, 
saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? How long, God, are we going to sit here without justice being done? How long are we going to sit here before you, the judge, previous point, bangs that gavel and executes your judgment? How long until you, God, takes vengeance on us? They say this to God, not to you. There is nobody in heaven who died for the faith who's counting on you to pick up your sword and go on a crusade for them. And I mean not this sword, I mean a real bloody weapon sword. No one is calling on you to go avenge anybody else. God is retributive. God in his own time, in his own way, in his own manner will execute his vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1. God is retributive, but I am not. Open up to Romans chapter 12 and listen to toward the end of the chapter. This is Romans chapter 12 is Paul's Sermon on the Mount. But listen to Romans 12, how he phrases this beautiful thought. In fact, I know the screen says verse 19, but go back up a few verses. Look at Romans 12, 17, about why we should not be the avengers of men's souls or of wrongdoing. Romans 12, 17, Paul says, recompense to no one evil for evil. Don't pay back evil given to you with evil done to them. Because what are you then? An evildoer. That's not for you. Don't pay back evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Just get along. But what if they kill me? Then die. And then go to the altar and ask God to avenge you. Because that's the next verse. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. It's not your job. You're not God. You don't take vengeance. Not even for yourself. But rather give place unto wrath, the old Bible says. Take your wrath. Take your innate sense of I want the scales balanced I want justice done I want to be avenged you take that and you set it aside for someone else to pick up who will pick it up God will give place to wrath as it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord oh to be like thee yeah but you don't get to be all the way he is because he is retributive and I am not allowed to be here's something else he is that my brethren love to be and that's legalistic. God is legalistic. I'm not supposed to be. Let's see God as a legalist, though. Look at Isaiah 33, verse 22. Or just listen as I read it to you. Isaiah 33, the prophet says, For the Lord, he says a few things about God here. He says, The Lord is our lawgiver, our judge, our king. He will save us. Look at how all those words all fit together. He will save us. He's our savior. But what is the manner in which he'll save us in this text? He will save us as a judge. He will be the decider of who's right and who's wrong. He will save us as a king. He will be the guardian of who is right and the protector from those who are wrong. And he is our lawgiver. He is the one who says, here is what is right. Here is what is wrong. So that those who do this will be right and will be protected by the king, found not guilty by the judge. He is the lawgiver. He is the lawmaker. I don't have the right to tell you sir, anything. Anything. All I can do is tell you what he's already told you. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. Preach the word. Be constant in so doing. In season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort by preaching the word with all suffering and doctrine. Because people are going to come around where they're not going to want to hear the word. Listen, that's true. You preach long enough, eventually you'll get an audience who doesn't want to hear the word of God. Eventually that will happen. You start preaching your opinions, that will happen immediately. 
Because once we get into the realm of opinions, that's a gigantic swimming pool that we're all swimming in. And it's disgusting because we're all peeing in that pool. Because we all have opinions that we want to share. We all have our things that we want to say. We all have our ways that we want to push. Your way doesn't matter any more than mine does. And mine doesn't matter a bit. Opinions don't mean anything and they're not laws. God has made a law. He is the lawgiver. He's the lawmaker. He's the law decider. I'm just the guy telling people about it. And if I try to inject myself into what he has said, then I'm the one who's condemned because he's a lawgiver. He's legalistic. His mindset is for law. Mine. I can't be that way. I have to be subservient to what the law is. Now I got one more before we start talking about the positive. A lot of negative here. There's a lot of don't be this, don't be that. But I got one more that's going to, oh, I forgot. Sorry, I keep forgetting. You have to turn around and I forget. Look at James 4, verse 12. It's a good verse. We can't skip it. Look at James 4, verse 12, about why we shouldn't be legalistic. The writer says, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. And who are you or me to judge somebody else? And the Bible entwines these notions of being a judge and a lawmaker, as Isaiah does in his text. They're all, they're all part and parcel of the same idea. You're deciding what's right and wrong. You're arbitrating who's right and who's wrong. That's not for you. There is one lawgiver. Who are you to play that role? You're not God. Stop acting like you're God. I Stop acting like I'm God. Not how it is. God is legalistic, not me. Now there's this one. God is needy. Now that sounds bananas. God's not needy, you're probably thinking to yourself. Well, let me tell you what I don't mean before I tell you what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about deficiencies. I'm not talking about dependencies. God has no deficiencies. God has no dependencies. God doesn't, in that sense, God is not lacking something that I have to provide for him or he'd do without and he'd suffer. No, God is God. He's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's complete. Okay, not that kind of need. I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about. Look at Exodus 20, where we were earlier, and go back to something Moses says in, in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Look at one of the commandments. We're going to start in verse 11. We're going to get verse 10 in just a second. But I want you to get verse 11 because this gives you the why there, Israel has given the command in verse 10. So start with the why, and we'll work our way back. Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that in them is and rest of the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. God made everything in six days. Indisputable, there it is right there in your Bible. God made everything in six days. And then, what did God do on day seven? God made nothing on day seven. God rested on day seven. Why did God rest on day seven? Was he pooped? Was he tired? Did he need a day? Was that his his labor day where he just got to put his feet up because he just couldn't do another day? No, God is not man. God is not weak. God does not get tired. I need a day. Sometimes I need to take a day off and I need to relax and I need to unwind. I need Labor Day. God does not need a day. God did not get to Friday and think, well, I'm really dragging. I'm just going to take the next day off. No, no. God made everything in six days and then God chose on the seventh day to rest. Now, why did God do that? He must have had a reason because God never does anything without a reason. If you don't think that's true, by all means, I invite you to give me something God did for no reason. Give me something where God did it and he said, well, I guess I don't have to do that. All right, there's a freebie. No, God doesn't do that. You know why? Because God is God. God's perfect. He always throws a bullseye. He always gets a hole in one. He never never comes short and has to do it again. He never goes too far and has to double back. God always nails it 
perfectly every time. That's, that's why he's God. That's the law of parsimony. You ever heard of that or the law of parsimony? How you pronounce it? You, have you heard of Occam's razor? The simplest explanation is usually the correct one. That's an application of the law of parsimony. The law of parsimony is, in terms of the divine, God never does anything more or less than he absolutely has to. He always does exactly the right amount, which means God. Why did God make the world in six days? Because could he not make it in one? Did God, that is to say, did God not have the power to make it in one? Yeah, if you can speak and things just appear, he can make it all in a day. But God had a need to make the world in six days, as much as God had a need to rest on the seventh day. Why did he rest on the seventh day? Are you ready? Here's the answer. I have no idea. But I'll tell you this, it was a godly need. I need to rest when I work a long time because I get tired. God doesn't. But God rested on the seventh day. I don't know why, but I know it wasn't an earthly need because God is not of this earth. God is the maker of this earth. God's need, therefore, was a godly need. And of course it was. He's God. All of his deeds are godly deeds, so all of his needs should be godly needs. I can't understand his ways or his thoughts. It's, it's not comprehensible to me. I don't need to either. I just need to appreciate the reality of the situation. He rests on the seventh day. Everything he does, he did that way because it had to be done that way. Have you ever heard a preacher, a false teacher is what they are, say, God could have saved humanity anyway, but he chose Jesus. Uh-uh, no way, absolutely not. Jesus had to die on the cross or you couldn't be saved. He needed to die on the cross. Now, he chose, it was free will, but if it was going to happen, it had to happen that way. Why? Because that's the way it happened. God always bullseyes it. God always gets a hole in one. If he does it, he does exactly that way because that's the only way to do it. God rested on the seventh day. Why? Because he needed to. God is needy. He has things he does because he needs to do them for his divine reasons. Now go back a verse because I'm not supposed to be needy. Now you had the why. Look at what the command was to Israel. Exodus 20 verse 10. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your manservant or maidservant nor your cattle or stranger that's within your gates. You're not supposed to work on the seventh day. This is not Genesis 1. This is Exodus 20. The Israelites are hearing this for the first time. This is, this is new information to them in this whole account, in this whole segment of their history. They knew creation. They knew God made the world in six days and all that is in them. And he knew, they knew God rested on the seventh day. But here now is the first time they are given a command attached to that reality. They're given a command attached to the notion that God rests on the seventh day. And that command is, so therefore you must rest on the seventh day. And you just know there was some Israelite at the foot of Sinai. Listen to that thinking, I do all my best work on Saturday. I have all my customers on Saturday. That's when I'm in the best mood to work is on Saturday. That's when I do all my best work. You tell me I can't work at all, not even half a day. I can't even mow my yard on Saturday. And Moses says, no, you can't. Well, why not? I'm not tired. When I get up on Saturday after working six days, I'm not tired. Why do I have to rest? It's not an earthly reason why the Israelite had to rest on the seventh day. It was a godly reason why they had to rest on the seventh day because God gave them the reason. God said, you rest on the seventh day because I rested on the seventh day. I took the day off. Well, why God? None of your business. It's a godly reason. Now you wanna be like me? You wanna be godly? I'd like you to rest on the seventh day with me. And I don't think that's asking too much.
to you, if I'm the Israelite hearing that, God says to his people, I worked six days and I took the seventh off. I'd like you to take the seventh day off with me. Now, we're not Israelites. We don't, we don't observe the Sabbath. Not by law. We take days off, but for fun. But let's put it this way. First day of the week, you gather in this very room, right? You sing songs to God, do you not? You study his word, do you not? You pray to him, right? You uh, make an offering of your financial means to the Lord. Which one am I leaving out? What's the other one that you do? You take the Lord's Supper. You take communion. Do you need to take communion? Now, I'm not talking about command. You're commanded to. So you're compelled by obedience and by love for the master to obey. But no one's twisting your arm. Do you need to, do you need to eat? Yeah, you need to eat. But do you need to eat bread and wine on the first day of the week? A little bitty wafer and a little bitty, little bitty cup? No. You don't need to do that. Why do you do that? It's not an earthly reason. You're not filling your belly. In fact, to do so and to abuse it that way is sinful, according to 1 Corinthians 11. You're not taking the Lord's Supper to fill your belly. It's not a meal to you. Why do you take communion? Your need is a godly need. You don't need it. He needs it. You take communion because Jesus needs to take communion on the first day of the week. And he does with you. As he says, when you take it, I'm taking it with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord needs to take communion every first day of the week. Why? I don't know. It's not my business. He has a godly need. I'm not God. He is. He has a godly need to take communion every first day of the week. And he says to me, me, now I'm not some Israelite. I'm his disciple. I'm his Christian. He says to me, I'm taking communion on Sunday. I'd like you to take it with me. I don't think that's too much to ask. Do you? He's got a godly need. God is needy. But I'm not supposed to be needy. But I, I hear you're hearing me say this and you're thinking, but I do have things I need. What do you need? What do you need? You know what you need. You need food. You need clothing. You need shelter. Anybody going to dispute that? Do you need food? I know, you know you need food. Because if you don't have food, your, your stomach's going to start growling. That's a warning. Okay? Your stomach growls to tell you, you, by the way, body, you need to eat soon. Because if you don't, your organs will shut down. Your brain will stop working and you will die. You need food. You need clothing and shelter to protect you from the elements lest you die of exposure. You need shelter. You need food. You need clothing. You need those things. But we don't always stop there, do we? We also say to God, God, I've got this problem over here. I've got this guy who won't leave me alone. I need to fix that problem. Or I've got this house that I'm, I have this mortgage and it's falling apart. And I can't afford to fix it. I need to fix this problem. My, my family is falling apart. My marriage is falling apart. Or my, my boyfriend has left me. My girlfriend has abandoned me. I have all these needs. I need this fixed. I need that fixed. I need this worked on. What did Moses say in the, in the Exodus text? In six days, who made the heavens and the earth? The Lord. What a relief. You didn't. You didn't make anything, did you? You didn't make squat. Everything you've ever done, and you might have worked really hard with your hands, and you might have created some amazing things. Maybe you could carve things out of wood, but you didn't make the wood. You didn't make anything. Maybe you lived in Detroit a long time ago, and you made cars, but you didn't make the metal. You didn't make the gasoline. You didn't make anything. God made it. God made the world in six days. I didn't. What a relief. It's not my problem. The whole world is crumbling around me, God. I have a problem. I need to fix the world crumbling around me. I didn't make the world. God did. Let him deal with it. That's a burden I don't have to worry about. God made the world. It's his problem. Now, between the two of us, who would you reckon can solve the world's problems? Me or God? Don't worry. You won't hurt my feelings. God. It's not my problem. Here's this thing over here, God. I have to worry about this thing over here. No, you don't. God didn't make, I didn't make that thing. God made that thing. God made it. Let him deal with it. 
And he'll deal with it in his own time, in his own way, in his own manner. However he wants to deal with it, God will deal with it. It's his problem. I don't have to worry about it. You know what that is? Contentment. But you think, oh yeah, okay, fine. But I still need food, clothing, and shelter, right? Open up your Bibles, please, to Matthew 6, 31 through 33. You need food, clothing, and shelter? I think God would agree with you. Now watch what he does for you. Matthew 6, 31. Take no thought. That is to say, stop worrying about what you will eat, how you will be clothed, how you will live. For all those sort of things do, my Bible says, the Gentiles, the non-believers, they seek after those things. And you think, of course they do. They need those things. No, no, no. They need them because they don't have a relationship with God. You do. Take no thought for those things. Your Heavenly Father knows that you have need of those things. So what do I do? What does he say in Matthew 6, 33? He says, seek ye first God, his kingdom, and righteousness. And all those things will be added unto you. You need food, clothing, and shelter. God says, like I don't know, you follow me. You put me first. You put your food, clothing, and shelter second. You put me first. I will provide for you what you need. You will be taken care of. You have this huge basket of stuff. That's your needs, your petty problems, your big issues, the world crumbling around you. And God says, that's not your problems. I made the world. I'll deal with it. And you say, fine, take it. But I've still got my little basket, though, right? I've still got my things I get to worry about. Like, we actually want them. That's how some people are. They want to hold on to their worries. Because otherwise, what are they going to do with themselves except be content? We can't have that. So they have their little basket of things that they actually need. And they say, yeah, but God, I'll get to keep this one, right? i got to have some things to worry about. And Jesus says, no, I know those are your needs. I'll take them, too. I'll take them. So what am I left with? Contentment. God is needy. God needs. I don't. God made everything. So he needs to fix everything. And he does through Jesus. I didn't send him. I need him. But I get him as a gift. So how can I even say I'm needy? I'm not needy. I'm not in a perpetual state of needy. Because God is a provider for me. Stop acting like you're God. What time do I have to stop? Oh, perfect. Good. Because I'm not done. Stop acting like you're God. Instead, stop. let's all start acting like our God. Because there are some qualities of God that we can emulate. We're not God. We don't need to act like we are God. Because God can be legalistic and judgmental and retributive and needy. Not me. No, no, no. But there are some qualities of God which I can possess, which I can be like. So let's start acting like God. Oh, to be like thee. Oh, to be... Not you, but oh, to be like you. In what way? Oh, to be like thee in character. Lowly in spirit. Holy, harmless, patient, brave, loving, forgiving, tender, and kind. Those are just the adjectives given to us in the first verse of the song. Let's be like him because that's what he was like. That's his character. What does he say in his great invitation? Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Or the verse before that to start it. Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Because I am meek and lowly in heart. And through him you will find rest unto your souls. We can be like that. We can be someone who invites people to Christ. With meekness and lowliness and humility. And a sense of self-sacrifice and subservience to others. Putting others ahead of ourselves. Those qualities are best exhibited by our master. Let's be like him. In that character. Let's be like him in purpose. 
second verse of the psalm gives us some other adjectives and adverbs. Meekly enduring cruel reproaches, willing to suffer if others be saved. If that doesn't summarize the master, nothing does. Why did he go through what he went through when he could have, according to his own words, called 12 legions of angels? And I don't even know how many angels would have been just left in the sidelines for round two. But I know round one was 12 legions of angels, any one of which could have taken out a single army, because it did, an angel did take out the Assyrian army at the end of Isaiah 37. One angel can wipe out 185,000 soldiers. He's calling 12 legions of them if he wanted to stop what he chose to go through. Why did he choose to go through it? Because he meekly was willing to endure all of that reproach so that I could be lifted up, so that I could be esteemed, so that I could be made righteous in his sight. Oh, to be like him in purpose. He set his ambition, his desires, his goals to serve others. I can be like that. I can be that way. Finally, oh, to be like the in service. All This is the third verse. All that I am and have I am bringing. Lord, from this moment, all shall be thine. That's your resolution statement in that song. Oh, to be like these. What we sing over and over, those that refrain over and over. Well, the song gives you the recipe. It tells you how to be like him. How do you get to be like him? What does Jesus himself say in Luke 9, 24? You want to be like me? You got to follow me. You want to follow me? I'm going to Golgotha. Take up your cross up the hill and follow me. I am choosing to put you before me. Now you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and come follow me. He chose to serve I want to be like him. It's not always easy because he's calling on me to serve. But if I do, I'll be rewarded. Oh, to be like thee. But wait, I'm not done. I have one more and then I'm done. I promise. Oh, to be like thee. Because what am I? I'm not God. What am I? I'm a child of God. So let's act like children. If you are, maybe you're one who said it. Or maybe you're one who just recently stopped hearing it if you, because all the kids are in class, so we're all adults here. But I, I still distinctly remember being told, stop acting like a child. And you don't hear that when you are a child. That doesn't make any sense. You're a child. Of course you'd act like a child. But eventually you come to be a little bit older and suddenly there's all these expectations. I have to sit still and I have to be quiet and I have to not do this. I have to not you know, pull my sister's hair. I have to stop acting like a child. We hear that all the time. Listen, as the preacher of the hour, I give you by divine authority... You're allowed to act like a child. But you gotta act like a certain kind of child. You can't just go pulling hair. That's not what we're talking about. Matthew 18, 1 through 4. What does Jesus say? The disciples ask him the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? A very childish question in the negative way. Because somebody wanted to hear their name called. They wanted to be number one, top banana, next to the Lord. They wanted to be right there and everyone else at their feet. And Jesus says, Someone bring me a child. And he says, If you want to be the best in the kingdom, if you want to be the top in the kingdom, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, Act like a child. Of all illustrations for the great illustrator, of all object lessons for the master teacher, he chooses a child as his model to emulate. Why? He doesn't say act like God. He says act like a child. What is it about a child that sparked in the Lord an idea when he saw that child at play, no doubt, and he said, yeah, that's the one. Act like that, and you'll be the greatest in the kingdom. What is it about a child? Well, a child loves his parents. I didn't say teenager, I said child. A child loves his parents. Look at Psalm 34, verse nine. Listen to what the psalmist writes. Psalm 34, verse nine. Think of a little child. Oh, fear the Lord, all ye his saints, 
for there is no want in them that fear him. My Bible says fear or revere, an expression of devotion and love, and those who do are taken care of. Why do children love their parents? Because a child can't feed himself. A very, very little child can't change his diaper or her diaper. Doesn't know how to make the bed, is scared of what's under the bed. Doesn't want to get out of bed, turn the light off, has to call me to get up, and now I'm just venting, to go there and turn the light off because if they get out of the bed, then the monster under the bed will pull them out. So they rely on you. Why? Because they're dependent on you. And when you come in and you swoop in and pull the chain, you're the hero. And they just love you for being the hero. God is your hero. You're his child. Act like a child. A child loves his parents. Did Jesus love his father? He says so, John 14, 31. He says, the world's going to see that I love my father in his sacrifice on the cross. What is it about a child? Oops, there it is. What is it about a child? A child loves his siblings. They don't always act like it. I have siblings. We fought a lot. Still do sometimes. But a child still loves his siblings. Maybe you've heard the illustration. Not that I'm advocating for violence. I would never do that with a serious tone. But maybe you've seen a child on the playground picking on his brother or something. And then some other kid comes along and starts picking on his brother and suddenly, no, that's not going to happen. I can pick on my brother. You can't pick on my brother because you love your brother. You love your sister. It's innate. It's storge love. It's family love. It's built in. It's, I mean, there's always certain circumstances where it's not like that and that's tragic. It's not ideal. But the ideal scenario, the, the normal scenario is families to love each other. Sometimes in their own weird ways, but they do love each other. A child loves his siblings. Look at 1 John 4. We're children of the Father. We must love each other. A few verses just plucked out of this chapter. 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loves, and I know what it says, and you know what it says, because you've sung the song a thousand times. Everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. But in the context, it's love each other. So think of it that way. Beloved, let us love one another. For loving one another is of God, and everyone that loves one another is born of God and knows God. And if you don't love each other, you can't say that you are. 1 John 4, verse 12. No man has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, then God dwells in us, and his love is perfected in us. Can you see God? No, he's a spirit. Guess what? I'm not. But you can show me love. And in so doing, the world watching you will see what loving the Father looks like. John 4, 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he's seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God, loves his brother too. Did Jesus love his siblings? Go back a chapter. Look at 1 John three sixteen. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay, our, lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John three sixteen. What is it about a child that attracted Jesus to his people that made him say, that's the kind you should be like? A child loves his siblings, just like Jesus loves us. Last one that I'm done. A child loves his new life. A little child plays. Plays with boundless energy. Plays with delightful cackling, giggling. A child is not encumbered by debt and mortgage payments and, and broken-hearted romances. A child doesn't have to worry about paying for gasoline or the price of eggs. A child doesn't have to worry about his sick parents. A child doesn't have to worry about anything, at least ideally. A child should never have to worry. A child should just get to enjoy this beautiful thing they just stumbled into or born into, literally, which is life. It hasn't worn them out yet. It hasn't dragged them down with its cynicism and its pessimism and its sinfulness yet. They're just brand new. They're pure. They're innocent. They're sinless, spotless. 
and happy to be so. A child loves life. Well, you are a child of God. You have been born again. What a fresh start you have. How tragic would it be for us as when we were sinners to be washed in the blood of Jesus, risen from the watery grave, given a new life, and then immediately go back to being cynical and bitter and hostile and pessimistic because the world is that way as if we're not supposed to be different. You have a new life. Act like a child. Let the world see how great it is and they might want a new life too. Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Go there. That'll be my last verse. Yeah, Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Listen to the master. But he answered and said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Oh, Matthew 16, 24. Well, that's not the right verse. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because John 3, 3 through 5 is just as good. And it's on the corner of the screen. So we'll, we'll use that one to close with. If you want to be born, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And when you are, you become a brand new person. And a brand new person, if you've ever watched a child, loves that they're brand new. So be a brand new person. And then you can be like Jesus wants you to be. What does he want you to be? Like him. That's our goal that we're striving for. Oh, to be like thee. I am very much not. But I'm going to make it my goal to try a little harder every single day to be a little bit more like him. And to love the beautiful holy life that he has given me. If you are here this evening and your life is full of problems. Well, give them to God. They belong to him anyway. Stop selfishly holding on to your problems. They're not your problems. They're God's problems. Let him deal with them. You just give your life to him. You just submit to him. Be faithful to him. And he will give you what you need to get through. If you are a Christian but you've not been faithful to that ideal, then turn back to Christ. If you're not a Christian at all, then turn to Christ. Put your sins to death. Bury them in a watery grave and rise to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6. We can help you do that. We can help you do anything you may need. Just let us know right now as we stand and sing. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin 414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then. But for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck, and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right, thank you.